Hey, Barbara. Just curious. Do you know how to engage a team in highly technical information that you may be an expert at, but they may not? Curious Teams is a podcast for design, construction, and owner teams. Welcome to Curious Teams. I'm Fred Gutierrez. And I'm Barbara White Bryson. And we're here to make the design, construction, and owner environments a better place. And today, we're doing something very special. We're joined by an acoustic consultant to talk about how he's worked successfully in Teams and where teams could use some improvement. So without further ado, I'll let Barbara introduce our friend here. Thank you, Fred. I'm so excited to introduce our listeners to Scott Pfeiffer, who is a partner with Threshold Acoustics. And we met recently, but we had a lot in common, as it turns out. So we're going to talk about that through the day. But the main focus of this conversation today are team characteristics or dynamics that Scott feel is important. So hello, Scott. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to have you here. I'd, I'd like to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the acoustics consulting world, and maybe what's difficult about being a partner in a world like this. Sure. Um, so I was a very mediocre singer through high school and uh, and really loved music and loved being involved with music, but found out very fast uh, when I got to college that I was not going to make a living with my voice, uh, at least not singing or performing. Uh, I was also pretty good at science, and so I uh, put together the combination of singing and, and physics and uh, created a, or found the existence of this field called, called architectural acoustics. Uh, it seemed pretty exciting to me at the time, mostly because it seemed like not everything had been figured out yet, and so there was room to learn a lot more and get, uh, get further and deeper into the problems of sound in rooms and the possibilities of sound in rooms. And so uh, I set out on a course to mix those two loves of music and science to find myself in an architectural acoustics master's program in Denmark and then on to consulting and acoustics. So as we talk today, I'm gonna, one of my questions is going to be, do they have it figured out now? <laughs> or is there still more to, to learn? <laughs> sure. Always more to learn. Um, but, uh, but I think we're doing a pretty good job. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So you, uh, one of the things that uh, that we connected on in our conversation is that you have a very particular approach for you and your firm regarding how to engage on teams for architectural acoustics. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, you know, acoustics is this thing that you can't touch, that you can't um, intuit necessarily. And so it's a big mystery. And, and one of the ways to navigate that is to be very dogmatic and confident and tell everybody everything's going to be okay, just trust us and muscle your way through. Um, but that is not a very satisfying design process uh, or interaction with a team. So we've uh, adopted techniques around really engaging the the, the whole team in the science that is acoustics, um, getting it out of being so mystical, uh, a little less black cape and a little more uh, understanding. So uh, 
one way is to just turn over all the information we have and explain not only what we think ought to be done, but why. And to give over as much information as possible to the design team uh, and to the owner, because ultimately, with more information, they can participate fully in the decisions. Um, that, that's been the way we've worked for the uh, 17 years since the founding of our firm. Um, but it's also gotten a bit of a boost in the last 10 years when oralizations have become much more readily uh, possible to do with a great deal of confidence, which means we're making rooms and making changes to rooms in a way that we can listen to. Um, that technology has been around for 30 years or more my entire career, but the the resolution of the of the capabilities has only gotten better and better over that time. So I want to make sure that we're clear for our listeners, so that they understand exactly what you're what you're talking about. Sure. And I kind of get the idea that if your oralizations are possible or better, that means that is that a mock-up sort of process or is that Sure. T- tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. Uh, you know, in the most full form, it is uh, the, a model of, a, of an existing room or of a new concept that you can make changes to and listen to those changes. So we have in our office a 22-channel surround setup in a room. You can also do it through headphones, but it is more compelling in real space. The headphones tend to um, make you feel like you're in your own world rather than allowing you to feel like you're really in a space. Um, and so if you can sit in a room surrounded by 22 speakers that, that with a big image of the thing you're listening to in front of you that fills your peripheral vision, um, then you can really begin to imagine yourself in that space. Now, it, it is not so much the try it before you buy it model where you say you get to hear it and tell me when it's okay and we'll build it just like that. That requires a level of, of uh, a, a bit of a leap that is just like saying that a visualization is just like the real thing when it's really not. It's always an abstraction that you're using in order to communicate about this complicated concept. What we do instead is treat it more like you would the eye doctor. When the eye doctor puts two options in front of you and says, is, which is better, A or B, no one has trouble uh, distinguishing those two and choosing one. It's fairly intuitive. For us, it's the same thing. If we allow you to listen to, to two things where we've only changed one element of those of the conditions, you can readily say without a musicology degree or without an acoustics background, you can say, I like one over the other. And that really allows us to all be on an even playing field. It's not us dictating what ought to be heard. It's not the architect saying what the shape of the room should look like. It's really a, a an aesthetic decision that each person gets to make on their own, which then allows us to guide the, the design decisions based around a real sense of aesthetic and sense of what the owner wants to get in the outcome. Uh, and so that, that guides us through the process in a really nice way. I think that one of the things that I want to make sure that we point out is that this is not the typical process. And I can remember having dealt with many, many teams, that there's a point where architects, clients, and or other consultants, eyes begin to glaze over because they're not typically interested or engaged in these subjects because they know they're not going to be the experts. Is that your experience? It is. And I guess um, ultimately when we have the, the decision makers in the room who are musicians, 
they of course engage in this immediately. There are others who make the assumption that I, I won't be able to hear the difference, I can't tell, I'm not an expert. Um, what, what we found is that uh, the discussions that happen between the people in the room um, become really valuable. Um, now, our technology is not unique. There are other firms that do oralizations. Um, but I think one of the things that is different is that we can fit about a dozen people in the room at a time. The sound is only idealized for one chair in the middle of the room. But because it's a shared experience, people can start to have a conversation. In the particular example uh, where we shared some common roots, um, the, the work at Rice University for the Opera House, um, there was a little bit of this circumstance that occurred um, where uh, the university architect was in the room and was getting a little frustrated that everyone was talking about what they were hearing and he wasn't hearing the differences. Um, the nice thing about that exchange was once he had put voice to that, the opera program director said, hey, no, here, let me tell you what I'm hearing. You know, and in comparing a, a model that was that was inspired by the Estates Theater in Prague versus the a model that was inspired by the uh, Royal Opera at Versailles, he said, OK, singing is a very special thing. It involves two distinct parts. One of them is uh, the head voice, and it's not very pretty. And he makes this sound. He says, oh, and he's got very nasally uh, demonstration. Um, and he says, that's the head voice. That lets you get to the back row. That's how you do it. And, um, but it's not pretty. The beauty comes from the, from the body, from the rest of the voice, the chest voice. And he demonstrates that, and he makes a very beautiful sound. Um, and says, now, the Estates Theater is all about the head voice. And the Versailles is all about the chest voice. And when we went through the process again and listened, and now everyone in the room had a better sense of what these differences were and how they were being experienced. So we as the consultants made it possible to have that experience, but we didn't have to say a word. The, the communication happened among the team between uh, people who had vested interest in the outcome, and we could just enable that conversation rather than driving it. I want to get back to the um, the project at Rice on a number of levels in a minute, but I do want to help our listeners understand uh, the consequences of the decisions that are being made and why it's so important for the entire team to be involved, as you've illustrated. Well, I would say for us, that was a really critical decision because the Estates Theater is a perfectly good opera house. Um, it is it doesn't sound nasally when someone's performing there, but the point was made that the sound of the Estates Theater is much more true or um, uh, clear. It's it's more frontal. You you sit in a in a surrounded a balcony that's stacked one on top of the other, and you watch the program through a window. Um, and so that the nature of that sound is is completely appropriate for an opera house. It's it's the way many opera houses are designed. Um, but it's a particular acoustic aesthetic. By contrast, Versailles is um, has the lowest balcony is small. The next balcony gets larger in diameter, and they step back from each other, and it opens the room up in a very different way. And so the aesthetic of Versailles is much more. It's a bit more reverberant. It's a bit more like being surrounded by the sound. There's nothing wrong with either option, 
So it's an acoustic aesthetic choice. That's not one that we as consultants want to make. We want the music, the people who are involved in the music making to make that choice um, rather than have us make it for them. And no amount of discussion of reverberation time or parameters that we use in acoustics and science is going to get us there, right? So the impact or the uh, effect on the uh, team is multifold. At, at Rice, they had very specific requirements at the school about who was going to be using this stage. Uh, and it was, so it needed to be shaped for young voices. Uh, but in addition, every single decision that was related to that goal changed the shape, the materiality, and even the equipment systems serving that room. So every member of the team was really, truly impacted by this discussion. Absolutely. Um, the other thing we were able to do in that setting was that uh, we worked with Fisher Dax was our um, theater consultant. And simultaneously with the experience of listening in the room, we also uh, did visualizations that they managed um, that were 3D through goggles that allowed you to really understand what your relationship was as you sat in each of the balcony levels and how, how you would feel um, in terms of your relationship to the stage. And so by alternating some listening time, which can be a little fatiguing if you spend too much time in a dark room listening only, uh, with time uh, looking at the options and what how those differences affect the visual aesthetic of interaction with the stage, um, we were able to really advance the design in that session on, on all fronts um, in ways that acknowledged the the ramifications of the decisions we made about the acoustics, about the layout of the seating that's results for the acoustics, and about how that might translate into architecture. So I want to go back to how the team was built, which allowed sure. for a lot of these discussions to happen. Uh, I remembered part of this, but you unfolded the story as a participant in a way that uh, was really interesting to me. So would you talk a little bit about how the team was created and then some of the initial steps that were taken in order to create a team-like environment? Sure. Um, and and but for the listener, if I may, and for the listeners, I was only present uh, at Rice during the very earliest steps, and so um, I cannot claim uh, ownership. But sure, um, we were grateful to have been identified as one of the candidate firms for the project in the beginning, um, even to make a kind of shortlist that was self-generated by, by Shepherd School. Um, for acoustics. Um, and then to the same was done for theater. Uh, so we interviewed directly with the end users uh, for the project, um, just for the acoustics, not as parts of architecture teams, which is often the way it's done. Um, th so they narrowed the selection process down to, to two shortlisted firms for acoustics and two shortlisted firms for theater. And then they added to the mix the, the pursuit and selection of architects. Um, what that did for us was uh, it, it allowed, they, they then instructed the architects to, to meet the four firms, the two acoustics firms, the two theater firms, not to make a selection, just to meet them and report back on their experience. 
and their thoughts. Um, they then shortlisted the architects and then asked them to team with one of the firms for theater and one of the firms for acoustics. Um, so we ended up on two of the three shortlisted teams um, and, and ultimately were selected for the project. Um, and that process... I, I just wanted to ask you this. Did it feel like the um, priorities were clearer or more, were more clear for the team because of that process? I, I think so, yes. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the benefit, the fear of selecting acoustics independent from theater, independent from architect, is always that you're going to create a forced marriage of people who won't get along. And I think, and I and I think that's accurate. I think that's appropriate to to consider and be careful about. Um, this process allowed a little bit of of selection on that basis, so that if you really didn't get along with uh, one of the firms, you at least had another choice. Uh, granted, that was a fairly short list, but still, uh, the the attitudes of the shortlisted firms were were different enough that I think there was an opportunity there, um, and so. I think allowing everyone to participate in a way that was a get-to-know-you experience uh, meant that there was more of a chance that you were going to create a team that that prioritized these disciplines that are so important to the success of this building, but also gave some room for uh, selection based on personality fit and and ability to get along and, and navigate this really complex design process together uh, in the end. And so once your team was identified, uh, mm -hmm. you went through some very unique steps uh, to better communicate with one another. And so would you describe that? Sure. I, you know, in, so I've been in this business 30 years and on out of those 30 years, three projects have allowed us the opportunity to travel the world, to see and hear things together with our colleagues um, and, and share what we learn out in the world about the differences among rooms in order to help make the decisions we're going to have to make together. And so this was one of those seminal projects that said, identify uh, like facilities, benchmark facilities uh, that you could visit in order to really understand firsthand what the pros and cons of different choices might be. Um, a 600 seat opera house doesn't really exist in the United States. Um, there, are, there are some that get close, maybe a thousand seats. Um, but really only multi-purpose rooms exist at that smaller size and they are not really focused on opera. So it meant that, that our visit took us to, um, to Paris and London and um, Prague in order to identify some locations where similar sized rooms were used for very uh, specific purpose, for the very specific purpose of creating opera, which is a really fun opportunity. Oh, yes. <laughs> I wish I had stayed around long enough for that opportunity. Right? You really should have. <laughs> so, yeah. Scott, you already identified one conversation that you had with the university architect that was very meaningful, uh, and it was also with the rest of the team, but you, I imagine that that is a product of both your firm's approach to sharing information uh, with the idea that everyone's involved in the decision, but also this team building process that you went through at the very beginning of the project. Do you have any other examples on how that manifested itself? 
on on this project or on other projects? Or this project or other projects, yeah. Well, certainly, um, you know, you can look at all the photos in the world. You can overlay drawings from many places. Um, but nothing really compares with um, sitting in a seat and, and seeing a person on stage and, and understanding how and then hearing them um, and understanding how the differences from room to room uh, really translate. And once once you've had that kind of shared experience, the conversations can be much deeper, again, um, without judgment on who has the expertise or who, uh, you know, who has the right to make a comment about what they think. Uh, you ultimately all shared that experience. So everyone gets to have an opinion. Um, and so I think that's been that was a really valuable part um, that allowed us all to to really communicate on the same level and so what about vocabulary does that does vocabulary change or become shared when you go through something like this absolutely um you know and and each of us has our own depths um uh you know the uh associate dean on the trip um had vocabulary uh depth around ornamentation that the rest of us just didn't own but but he shared it with us. So as we looked at at uh, elements of rooms, we we uh, heard learn each of us learned some new language that we were able to use going forward in order to respond to the visual aesthetic of, of ornament, which becomes a very acoustic element as well. Um, you know, at the the balcony fronts at rice, for example, each one of them is different, and it's not just uh, frivolity; it is a specific acoustic purpose. You know, the, the lowest balcony is smooth and, and specularly reflected, uh, reflecting. So sound that hits it reflects as if it hit a mirror and goes off in the direction where it, where it should on that behavior. As you move higher in the room, it gets diffusive, which scatters the sound. And that's important um, because of the relationship between the singer and the orchestra pit and how the sound interacts with each of those faces higher in the room. And then the highest one up is transparent intentionally transparent so that you open the the uh, aperture into the top balcony so that they get the most sound energy they can get and aren't blocked by by the uh, the presence of a balcony front that has to be there for visual and and uh, safety reasons but ultimately for acoustics reasons shouldn't be in the way um, and so that that discussion around ornament allowed us to find ways to render those outcomes acoustically in ways that were architecturally sensible Oh, that's fascinating. I'm just imagining as you're talking about, uh, talking through this, the different density and materiality and, or porousness is probably a better word, as you go up through the building. I want to get back to special conversations that are possible as a result, but um, I understand that the room, the opera theater itself is really very special and unique. Uh, and so congratulations on that project. Well, thanks. It was certainly a team effort, and, uh, and we, we are really grateful that, that uh, the expectations of, the, of those who set us on this path were uh, at least met, if not exceeded. Wonderful. So uh, back to other I- examples of hard conversations that would not have been possible without team building and your approach. Yeah. Um, we had a project that's about to open um, in early December um, in Groton, Massachusetts. Um, and that project was a con- is a concert hall, uh, a thousand seat concert hall for the uh, music school at Groton. And 
during the design process early on, there was a real tug of war over, again, this acoustic aesthetic question, um, whether or not the room should be uh, particularly reverberant or, uh, or have high degree of clarity uh, in terms of what you hear musically. And so uh, we were exploring the presence of a canopy, uh, a, a reflector array over the stage that would help to deliver clear sound to the audience on the, on the main floor. Um, and with that, with the canopy present, it was very clear. And with the canopy not there, it got more reverberant, which some people liked uh, one and some people liked the other. And they ultimately, they got to the end of that process and said, can we have both? So, well, yes, perhaps you can. The way to do that would be, would, although, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. We would need to raise the height of the roof more in order to create more reverberance in the presence of a of still having the canopy in place that creates a, a larger upper volume that allows the reverberance but we still get to keep the clarity from the canopy so well what would that you know let's can we hear that how would that sound and and so we sent them all off to lunch um re did some modifications to the model to raise the ceiling another number of feet i don't recall how many and um and brought them back after lunch and said, okay, well here, you know, here's, here's that thing you asked for. This is more reverberant, but still maintaining the, that presence. And ultimately that was the decision they made, which was not a inconsequential, you know, it carried some cost uh, with a taller building. And, uh, but ultimately that's again, a decision they could not have made just by saying, uh, should, what should we do with this? Should we change the shape of the room? Well, how would it sound if we did? And if we don't have the, the ability to give that over to them so that they can really experience that and own the decision they made, uh, then we're kind of, we're stuck without that capability uh, because ultimately they just have to trust us. And there's not a lot of <laughs> fun in that. And there's not a lot of, um, of opportunity uh, to, you know, to, to really allow for those difficult decisions because it wouldn't have been wrong had the room been shorter. You know, it would not have been, it was still would have been a great hall, would have been well-loved, but it would have been different. And that difference would have been very hard to describe by, by numerical values or graphs or diagrams. I really love this engagement of the design team and kind of the early, the early participants in building a team. And I'm wondering, you know, if this has some challenges to it where you create these relationships that might make it harder to onboard people later in the project. And maybe you can talk a little bit how, how, how you would strategically bring like the builder in and have them part of a, of a team and feel like they're still a participant in the team, assuming they're coming in later, or maybe they had a, had a, a connection early in the project. But I do know through my past experience that building these stories with your team members really allows people down, down the line. And that's not a, in a, in a negative way, just people later in the project to really be engaged in why things are important because in acoustics, the details are really where, where, where it happens. And it's like you talked about the balcony, the surfacing of the balcony being a key part to the overall experience, how you translate to the people, you know, specking that material and putting it in place is, is just as important as getting somebody's buy-in on why it's, why, why you designed it that way in the first place. Sure. Um, you know, I, and I hate to focus this entirely on one project, but I'm going to go back to Rice because I think there was a great example there related to the builder. 
one of the important features of, of the Opera House was um, the ability to get the first ring, the parterre that becomes a sidearm balcony at the right height. It, it's really a critical feature that if it's at stage level, as often happens in high school auditoriums or other places where you want to traverse from the sidearm onto the stage, and that's your technique for doing graduations and other things, there's a strange relationship in those settings where a person sitting in the chair closest to the stage is at stage level. And so a person singing near them is, is singing down at them uh, in a too close of a relationship where it's, it's awkward. Um, and so that would not have been the right relationship. And so it needed to be lifted. We also wanted the, that person to be as close to the orchestra pit as possible, as close to the stage as possible almost as if they could receive a, a bouquet of flowers if they reached up from stage to to get it. Um, because that kind of relationship means, uh, helps to define intimacy for the rest of the house. That that there are people populating the walls. These are theatrical things that, that the theater consultants talked about uh, with great uh, specificity and clarity, and we want to support their goals for that. They're also good acoustically. In order to allow people to enter the room on the ground floor, they have to enter under this balcony. And if you are um, not particular about this, uh, ultimately you create a six foot eight clear uh, pl for the door, plus the comfortable height to eight feet of the underside of the balcony, and then a thickness of floor and everything, and you push that balcony higher and higher, and ultimately it gets too far away. And now that relationship is wrong in the other direction. It's not too close because you're being sung down to. It's too far away. And so getting that relationship right required a real uh, intentionality about not routing any services through that pathway, about having only the very minimal required thickness as defined by the structural engineer to hold it up and to keep that floor surface as close to the main, the front of the, of the orchestra level as possible. Um, so that was one of those places where when construction started or when we met the construction team, we said, listen, we want you to understand, we know we've made your lives miserable about this particular zone. There's not enough room to do anything. It's gonna be a nightmare. You're gonna curse at us over and over again, but it's really important. And here's why it's really important. And we explained all of that. And as we visited the site over the life of the construction, Trades people would grab us by the elbow and bring us over there and say, "Hey, look, look here. Here's where we are. It's coming along good. We, no, no obstacles. It's really working. You know, thanks for drawing our attention to it. We here's what we did. We moved this thing around this way so that we could miss this very critical zone. And they became, you know, partners with us. At opening weekend, um, some of them sat in those seats and said, "Oh my goodness, the." stage is so close. I feel like I could, could hand those flowers over if I had them. And, and so, you know, it, it's, it's not all about oralization. It's not all about, it's about sharing as much of the pain and the struggle and the really hard decisions we have to make together um, all the way through the team uh, in, a, in a really f complete way that allows us to, to all come together and say, aha, you know, we did it. This, is, this was really hard, but we did it. Yeah, that's sometimes what I what I find is you know with with visualization becoming a new thing and people modeling projects. 
you know, it, it, it's very helpful in the design team, but when you can show that to the build team, they get a full full picture of, of what's what what's going on and they can kind of read into it further than you can see in a two dimensional, you know, document set. So, you know, with with your acoustic kind of samplings and your and your and your data, did you share any any sound sound visualizations with, with the construction team? We did. Um we didn't bring them all to Chicago, you know, the, the having everyone, uh, there are some limitations. Sure. Um, the 22 channel room doesn't transport easily to Houston either. Um, there are some points in the construction process where we had some decisions to make. And ultimately we brought a handful of speakers down to Houston and we set up a, a reduced uh, mock-up in a sense uh, in a conference room in order to have that same discussion and and make those decisions carefully uh, that we needed to make once construction was underway. So just a clarification, Scott, the um, construction team, at least some key members of construction teams and possibly some key subcontractors were on board early for design. Is that correct? Yeah. Lindbeck ultimately joined the team early as construction management. And then once the subs were on board in construction, we also come to the site, talk about all these crazy details that these acousticians came up with and why they're important, and walked through that um, multiple times through the life of the project as different parts and details became critical. Um, we, we would repeat that, that session again in order to give over all the information to just say, this is why we're doing this. Sometimes the result of that was, boy, but what you're asking us to do is really hard and really expensive. What if we did this? And what we find is that those suggestions that come back are much more valuable when we've given as much information as we can about why it's being done, because they may come up with another idea. If we just said, do it the way we drew it, that's what you need to do, trust us, that information wouldn't exist to allow them to, to come back and say, oh, but what about, you know, I see what you're trying to accomplish, what about? So uh, other than this project at Rice, what, what were some significant uh, uh, mm -hmm. team experiences that you have that you believe have really benefited the outcomes? Sure. Um, you know, one of the other things that we've done in a number of occasions, a number of projects, one that happens to also be in Houston at Jones Hall in, there in town, um, is that you know, Jones Hall, um, the Woodruff Arts Center in Atlanta, and the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia are all places where there's an existing building that has a challenge of some kind. And we've gone through with the, the owner and identified what those challenges are and created a long list of things they could do to make them better. And ultimately, each of those projects chose to do a small number of things off of that list at, at one time. And one of the beauties of that approach ultimately is that it really builds a sense of trust that, okay, we chose some things off the list and they really worked. You know, we, we got to hear the benefit of the small step we took together. And then they say, oh, well, you know, then let's do some more. Let's carry on with the next step. Um, and that uh, those interventions over time, I think, ultimately inform, we, inform each other about what's possible and about uh, you know, in, in some ways, uh, the, the challenge we have with those uh, small steps is you'd never want to overpromise that this is going to be great. You know, so we say, no, these, there's, this is a good change. We're going to make a, a noticeable difference. You're all going to be happy with the outcome. 
And ultimately, when they say, wow, that was much more than I expected, then we have the momentum to dive into the next round and check a few more things off the list and move the project forward um, over time uh, in a really nice way. So I'm hearing, I'm hearing three things that are very, very important to um, your team uh, experiences. Communication, which you own very much. Uh, respect, which is a, something that comes from the team getting to know each other and understanding what each can contribute and uh, also how important some particular decisions are. And then finally, trust. Uh, gosh, you did what you said you were going to do. And, uh, and, you, and you shared what you, what you said you were going to share. All of these things are, are truly key team building characteristics without a doubt. Yeah, I agree. I, and I really like this conversation we're starting on trust because as, as Scott, as you started, you're, you're kind of prepping the team not to trust you, to, 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 to let's get engaged and let's build some trust. And there's some reasons why you can trust us, but I need you to know, know why. And, and, and it's really your decision to trust us or not. So I really, and it takes time and it takes, takes, it takes some, some hard, hard conversations and some awkward moments. But, um, I think, I think you've, you've, you've shown that you can build trust through, through listening and through, through showing and sharing your expertise. And I think that's, that's really, really helpful for teams to understand that trust needs to be built and maintained. You know, I, I will, uh, on a slight tangent, suggest that one of the challenges we have today is that there's a much greater reluctance towards in-person meetings and uh, just the cost of travel and everyone's gotten used to the fact that we can do this. We're in, the three of us are in three different places and this is a very good conversation. Um, but ultimately, when you start a project and everybody's at different places on their understanding of the project process, having time together is so important uh, to not talk just about the project in this a lot of time, but to actually get to know each other around the edges. Um, you know, to, to bring a box of brownies and stick them on the table. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. But you mentioned process too, having those, that conversation about, you know, how are we going to engage with one another? And that's, that's so important. Do you explain this process that you're going to be taking the journey that you're all going to be taking together from your point of view? Do you explain that at the beginning? Um, you know, we probably don't do as much as we could. I think that's probably worth uh, the opportunity. One of the challenges we feel we have as a often, a, a, you know, a small contributor to a big project um, when uh, we, that we uh, let this unveil, you know, let the process unveil itself through the life of the project. And I think it works out OK, but there's probably room for us to to be more overt about that. And that's the thing we can learn from uh from the message that the two of you have been sharing on this podcast. So we'll, we'll take that to heart. Well, we also, I think Fred and I, and, and Fred, I want you to weigh in on this. We both feel like uh, this idea of being curious, that we're willing to ask questions, we're willing to dive in where our expertise doesn't necessarily lie in order to uh, improve decision-making, that that's a very important aspect of what we're trying to do together. Um, ultimately, it's not that we 
don't want them to trust us. Of course we do. It's not that it's just that that shouldn't be the only tool in the toolbox is to say, oh, no, we've done this before. Don't worry about it. Right. Because we really want engagement from the other side of the team. I've seen a number of rooms designed entirely by the theater consultant and acoustician where the architect said they know what they're doing. I'm going to let them do the inside of the room and we'll take care of everything else. And they're not satisfying. That That's not ultimately where the, you know, the fun is and the, and the greatest outcomes come when we challenge each other. And so we want that opportunity to happen. Yeah. One more question, Scott, uh, have you, have you ever experienced this not going so well? You mentioned that some architects would prefer you just take care of the inside. They'll take care of the outside. Is, are there any other bumps in the road that we should expect as we're trying to create these kinds of conversations? Yeah, I do think um, that there are circumstances where, you know, our firm comes from a, with people with backgrounds like mine that are physics and, and music, but others that are architects. And, and um, so, you know, we, we try to communicate in the language of design. So we, we sketch and we draw and we, you know, we share ideas. Um, but one of the least satisfying uh, things, one of my, one of our consultants uh, recently said, well, I sketched out an idea and I gave it to the team and it came back exactly the way I sketched it. And he said, I was hoping for more, <laughs> you know, that ultimately um, that, that while we have those skills among us as architects with training, that's not our job. And, and we want it to be more than that. Uh, we like to give over this information um, in order to um, allow all of us to get to a place we wouldn't have gotten without each other. And, and when that doesn't happen, we get disappointed and we say, well, wait, <laughs> no, that was an idea. Why don't you take it somewhere? Go, go run with that and, yeah. and come back to us with, with you know, something else. Um, it's just because we think it can be better. You know, early in the conversation, I was thinking, oh, Scott is just a great owner because what, what, he, what, he, what he is is he's kind of verbalizing what's really important to a project. But in truth, he's not the owner, but he's, he's giving words to, to the owner. But <laughs> I don't know if we want to go down this road, but, you know, you, I think you broaden the understanding for the owner and also you broaden the, um, especially in this Rice Project, you talk about the owner being, you know, the university, but also the students and, and the faculty and, and the people that are going to be sitting in those seats. So you really broaden the perspective on who, who's going to be um, affected by this and uh, what their, their needs are. So you're an advocate for them in some ways. So I think that's an interesting way to look at um, your specialization. But that could be the same for um, structural or, or um, mechanical, too, or, or, any, or even architectural or, or construction. Yeah, I mean, we do take seriously the, the role that we play. Most of the people in our office have spent some time on a stage, whether it was on the crew building sets or on the stage or in the pit playing an instrument. Um, almost everybody in our office has that experience in their in their background. We're not uh, most for the most part, we're not professional performers. Some of the some of them are. Um, but we do find that 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 experience is really important to communicating on behalf of the end users of these buildings. And um, we're not communicating for them. We ultimately want to give them room to use their own voice. But there are times when we when we feel like 
it's our obligation to um, to really shed light on what the decisions we're making together are going to have uh, the effect that those decisions are going to have on the people who will occupy the building. Like this uh, idea that Fred just brought up is uh, the work that you do is not only advocate for the owner, but in some ways you're behaving as an owner, clearly defining the parameters and which is which are being tweaked, adjusted, modified by other participants of the team. But by asking those questions and introducing this information, you're drawing the owner into the conversation in a way that they're going to find it more satisfying. Agreed. Ideally. Ideally. That's the goal. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Scott, this has been a fascinating <laughs> conversation, and I think it ups the ante related to how important and how beneficial great team building, great communication uh, can be on a project. And I, I want to thank you so much for sharing these experiences and your firm's uh, unique approach to designing with the rest of the team, with us today. So. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So thank you so much for joining us at Curious Teams. This is Barbara White Bryson. And this is Fred Gutierrez. And now you go make the design, construction, and owner environment a better place. Find us at CuriousTeams.com where we hope you share your comments and ideas. Look forward to upcoming episodes that answer questions that you've sent us on our website. And please subscribe to us on your podcasting platform. It helps us find more people like you. And it never hurts to do a five-star review.